Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst International here in the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Keith Giles. Yeah. Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm Keith, and I'm really looking forward to today's podcast. Um, if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, uh, would you please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review us on whatever uh, platform you happen to be listening on, because it really does help to boost our visibility, and it does encourage others to check us out. So if you would do that, we would really appreciate it. We know you love listening to us, so just take a couple yes. seconds. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Um, and we've been doing a peace quote of the week. Um, and this quote may come from an unexpected source, um, but it's really powerful. It says, when the power of love overcomes the love of power, the world will know peace. Mm. And who's that by? Who said that? <laughs> that quote is by Jimi Hendrix. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, the great peace theologian, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, it's so simple, but you know, yeah. it's so profound. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, yeah, that's why I love that quote. There's so much, so much uh, truth in that, right? Like mm-hmm. the power of love overcomes the love of power. Yeah. I mean, cause I think that's, it kind of speaks to the idea, at least for me, uh, that quote speaks to the idea of how really living in a more peaceful and just world is within our grasp, right? We, we get to decide what world, what kind of world we live in. And Mm -hmm. as long as the love of power is kind of what's driving us or the love of money or the love of, you know, anything else uh, until the power of love is the, is the main thing. um, We really can't move beyond where we're at. And so, but that's what it means to me. And I I guess to me, it's a very, uh, it's a very Jesus-y quote to me. <laughs> I can see yeah. Jesus saying something like that from the Sermon on the Mount, right? That we have to let go of our love of power or our love of money or our love of anything else. You know, this right. sort of selfishness and seeking our, our own, um, you know, having selfish goals and motives. Once we're really motivated by love, and love is about other people. And yeah, I think that's kind of the key. Absolutely. And I think the love of power is something that keeps a lot of wars and conflicts going and prevents peace um, in a, a lot of different situations. So, yeah, it's, yeah, really powerful. Well, thanks, Jimmy. That was really cool. <laughs> and um, we are continuing our ongoing series, uh, interviewing Peace Catalyst staff uh, around the country and the globe. And uh, we're asking them about you know, sharing their peacemaking journeys and how they're building um, connection and understanding and collaboration within their uh, communities and their neighbors for peace. And um, so it's been a great series and we're looking forward to continuing. Yeah. And this week we're interviewing um, our international staff, Brian and Stephanie Carey, who are working with local peace builders in Sarajevo in Bosnia Herzegovina. Um, and they're partnering, also partnering with Christian and other leaders around the world to equip and empower Christians um, for peace building uh, virtually, which is incredible. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to learn more about their story today. Brian and Stephanie, welcome to the Peace Catalyst Podcast. We're so excited to have you on our uh, on our podcast. Thanks Thank so much. You. Good to be here. So, uh, tell us again, quickly, where are you guys? We're in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and it's in the Balkans, so just east of Western Europe. We're in Eastern Europe. <laughs> so this is really cool. Um, I'm sure we'll get to this as as you're telling your story, but. Um, because I kind of want to know how you got there. <laughs> That's not where well, you're not no. from there, but uh, I'm sure we'll probably t- you'll tell that story as we go along. But um, can you give us an idea of like what, um, how did you come to Peace Catalyst or what made you want to be a part of Peace Catalyst? Sure. Um, well, in our, in our former lives before Peace Catalyst, uh, we were actually working in engineering. So I'm from, I'm from Texas. We both met in Houston at an engineering internship. Um, 
I was getting a degree in biomolecular and chemical engineering, and Brian was getting his in civil and environmental. Um, and so shortly before we met, um, as I was working in, in this engineering job, I was thinking, did I want to work for a for-profit company? Uh, maybe I had more options. Maybe I could work for a nonprofit organization or work. And I wanted to kind of explore that um, in some way, like how could I contribute to positive social development um, in a not-for-profit context? And so that desire really grew as Brian and I got to know each other and we traveled abroad um, for a year after graduation. And so at that point, it made sense to take just a few years to study and think together and individually what direction we wanted our lives to go. Um, so we took three years to get a master's of divinity in Atlanta together. Um, and there, it was really a gift to have that time and the resources. Right we got married, yeah. Yes, yes. We got married. And then two weeks later, uh, we started classes together. <laughs> so. Oh, a little bit of a honeymoon. Uh, we took the full, <laughs> the first full wow. semester, just to really, just to really enjoy Atlanta and and starting into our studies. Yeah. Wow. So you started. You met in an internship mm-hmm. program to be as in engineers, and then you went. Then you got married and went to uh, Atlanta together to go into this this uh, sort of nonprofit program. Well, yeah, it was an MDiv program, so Masters of Divinity. Um, a lot of People uh, yeah. also not just like for pastors and others, but a lot of people who do nonprofit work, um, especially related to uh, any sort of you know spiritual like religious communities. There, there were I forget the, how many of our classmates like many went into nonprofit work in addition to many becoming pastors. So we, um, yeah, we'd gone there specifically more interested in kind of nonprofit work and thinking through our faith and how that would apply uh, in life. Uh, in in some sort of social uh, betterment, nonprofit work in general. But while we're there, I will. I mean, for me, I'd really been motivated by my faith for a long time before that. So even before we met. Um, so I, Stephanie, took four years to finish like a triple major, and she's absolutely brilliant. I took seven <laughs> years to finish one. <laughs> um, but it's really not as bad as it sounds. I actually ended up taking like two and a half years off. Um, and so I lived in the Amazon jungle for about um, about a year, Latin America for about a year and a half. And so I was down there and living in the jungle and learning from these local guys about hunting and fishing in the jungle. Um, and then, but it was um, some pastors and kind of growing youth pastors who had invited me and two other guys. And so we were there kind of helping them figure out what does it look like to live out their faith while they were helping us figure out how to survive and build our own hut, hunt and fish, all these things. And so while we were there, it was uh, really transformational for me. And I think kind of like a first step towards peace building um, prior to ever having language about that or really thinking about that in multiple ways. Um, One, um, just really discovering how transformational these like mutual relationships are that, I mean, we survived and learned so much, like literally survived, but then learned so much through these relationships with these local guys who were really our teachers. Um, and then also did what we could to really try to um, share and kind of enter into that world and really share in ways that would be relevant for them. And it was really impactful for me at the same time. It was really impactful because looking back at the United States, and all of a sudden, this real kind of reevaluation of sort of America as a Christian nation and this coupling together of America and and my faith. And that sort of started to split apart as I saw really the mixed history of the United States and Latin America. And that was really impactful and started to impact kind of, I think, everything in on my journey after that. But then actually, um, so I'd gone back to the States and I'd gone back to school to finish my degree. And then I was doing this engineering internship whenever I'd met Stephanie. And at the time, um, again, really this faith motivation. I, so I was going into work and like wearing a suit and tie um, in this, you know, corporate office setting doing this engineering work. But then I was living right nearby in this. It was at the time ranked one of the most violent streets uh, in the United States. And so I was living at this halfway house 
helping these guys get back onto their feet. Um, as you know, they're trying to get um, IDs and figure out work and have a stable address and phone numbers so that way they can start to pull their lives back together. And um, that was the most intense culture shock I'd ever felt. And it was deeply impactful because also since I was living in this area, there'd be regular church groups that are coming down to serve. And I'd regularly be, I'd regularly be mistaken for one of these homeless or struggling guys. And so to be um, experience kind of the attitudes and the approaches of these churches um, and in a lot of ways, not all of it positive, just with the attitudes that they'd have towards me was really impactful again and in, in really about how much more mutual um, transformation is. Because some of these guys, their stories and what they'd been through, um, deeply impactful on me. Um, and then realizing sometimes even the mixed um, influence or mixed kind of ways in which churches would be involved. So I think all those, those are two real major experiences. And that one was right as I'd met Stephanie, mm-hmm. had really kind of shifted my mindset from in some way coming from the United States, coming from a middle class background as somebody that was like, you know, I had a reason to sort of have this savior mentality um, to something where it's really much more mutually transformational. And that stuck deeply because of these really, um, yeah, just really formational periods of my life, both a year and a half in Latin America and then this intense culture shock experience of corporate world to, um, real rough neighborhood every day back and forth. Um, but then, so, but yeah, so we'd met to kind of pick up where Stephanie left off. And so we'd gotten married like a year and a half, two years after that. And then we started at getting at our MDivs. And I focused specifically at that point on uh, justice, peace building and conflict transformation. And so, cause we were both getting more interested in peace building work as an expression of how we live out our faith. Mm-hmm. And also really thinking about mm-hmm. uh, inter-religious peace building. And so um, what does it look like to build um, to build really a sustainable peace and to connect across religious barriers? So we're studying that. I was working with different church groups um, in the Atlanta area where we were studying and helping church groups to connect across religious boundaries and these other experiences where I'm meeting these you know, diverse neighbors in the United States and inviting these church groups along. And... It was at that point, because um, we're also studying again, we're getting our MDiv, um, and I'm studying justice, peace building, and conflict transformation, but I really started to encounter these different peace building voices and, and theologians who are articulating more about this peace-oriented theology that there's this historic stream of. And so it was at that point that I started to really capture this idea of really the work of the church and really what Jesus was doing as this work of healing and reconciliation. And I started to shift my language. And as I was um, working with church groups, tried to challenge kind of this, um, the way in which kind of this dominant framework was really about salvation. Um, and, but it really didn't guide people towards some sort of like, what does that mean? Like, where is that headed? There was no trajectory to that. It was either escapist or kind of this endpoint. you're saved and you've kind of arrived. And for me, it was like, there's just a beginning whenever we're learning to follow Jesus and encountering Jesus in some way, it should lead to some sort of new way of relating to one another, which is transformational for everyone. So, I mean, like for me and my experiences, again, like in Latin America, in, in um, urban settings, that it's like this changed my life, learning how to connect with my neighbor, learning how to love my neighbor. And, and also, I think in various ways, was really hopefully transformational for other people around me as well. I but think it's, it, it was that that point that someone directed you to Rick Love. So, oh, was, you, yeah, you yeah. sound like Rick Love. You should meet exactly. this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been articulating more and more, trying to articulate like, like theologies of, of or, or missiology even of healing and reconciliation. And um, that's whenever somebody uh, introduced me to Rick Love via email. And so we started chatting on the phone and we'd exchange emails. I was writing different articles to try to, you know, move the needle in terms of how some, some churches were looking at, um, their own approach to sort of mission or the vocation of the church or the work of the church. Um, and then one thing led to another and we ended up joining, um, peace catalyst after we graduated. And, um, I didn't, I mean, just even to connect it to the Balkans, I'd done a direct directed study, um, specifically looking at, uh, inter-ethnic, um, violence in the Balkans and how much religion was co-opted to, uh, foment, 
hatred and further division because of it being this key identitor, identifier between ethnic groups. And also at the same time, so kind of, you know, inter-religious violence, if you will, even though some people would say, well, it wasn't because of religion, um, but, but the, re- the impact of religion on divisions and violence, but then also really looked at um, these examples of these peace builders who are doing, who were doing and still are doing incredible work in the Balkans motivated by their faith. Um, so that was um, the Balkans already at that point had been a part of the world that had really captured my attention, but, but then well, I mean, this is well. a fascinating part of the world. I, <laughs> I moderately forgot about Yugoslavia after in ninth grade, they were like, Hey, this big region of the world is breaking up. And I was like, okay. Um, and then we, I, I somewhat stopped mm-hmm. learning about, um, Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Um, but then yes, in, in, in master's program, we started learning about it more and it is just, that's awesome. It's just amazing. And there's so many opportunities here and so many people who've done peace work for what, 25 years, um, more, um, even there's such a long, beautiful history as well as the history that most people are aware of, of, I mean, this is where empires came together. Like, I mean, people think about Israel-Palestine as kind of this land bridge between empires that resulted in a lot of like collision of civilizations. I mean, the Balkans is probably that or even more. I mean, you have Catholicism and Orthodoxy. I mean, it's like the dividing line was through Bosnia. And then you have the Ottoman Empire that came up into Europe and extended into Bosnia. And so there's like East and West. There's, you know, EU and Russia. There's Catholicism and Orthodoxy. There's Christianity <laughs> and Islam. Um, and so that's like, you know, there's Saudi Arabia and Turkey <laughs> and Russia and the EU and the United States. And it's so in terms it all of even, converges here. <laughs> in, even in boxing wars and influence of foreign nations and kind of how messy things get whenever you have these foreign powers, so many things converge right in this little part of the world, which both makes it really complicated because it's not just oh, there's local tensions, like local tensions can be aggravated by these foreign powers that have interest in the region. Um, But then there's also incredible locals who have been navigating these dynamics for generations. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's really a privilege to be here. And we love it. Yeah. And I know that's what I love about how y'all do your work, because I know you're partnering with those peace builders on the ground who have been doing the work, like you mentioned, and um, it's just an incredible model for how we build peace. Um, and for our listeners who are maybe curious, which university did you both do your programs at? Um, at Candler School of Theology at, at Emory University Indicator. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, yeah, you mentioned, you know, that you were doing peace building and conflict resolution. And I was thinking there are Christian schools that teach that because uh, a few a few years ago I was actually having a conversation with someone and we were making a point to say how odd it is that so many you know you look at all these Christian schools and they don't have a peace you know program and like peace studies program why not if that's supposed to be our big mission so the fact that you had I mean was it a good program would you recommend it yeah I I really like it it definitely I mean it's funny because among conservative Christians, they look at it as this liberal university and, you know, dangerous, don't go there. But then among a lot of more progressive Christians, (laughs) they look at it um, and they're like, oh my gosh, there, there's a lot of real conservative people there and real, even some conservative, like conservative professors. And, and so Candler really intentionally cultivates Christian diversity in its student population and among its professors and so, I mean, I think for me, it was so deeply formational because before you really engage in any sort of, you know, inter-religious or inter-ideological, you know, inter-group across differences, uh, you know, conversations and peace building work, it's really impactful to have these intra-group conversations okay. within your own group. And so at Candler, yeah. there's, I mean, I mean, we had, you know, from, you know, seven-day creationists to, um, you know, practicing Episcopal um, LGBTQ monks. So it was this incredible range of, I mean, you have charismatics, you have people practicing high liturgy, you have theology all over the map that literally uh, I met, I mean, I myself had this 
like so many experiences, like I didn't realize that Christians could think like this or, or be like this. Yeah, but we're all had, in the same room. But then you had people great. like that from each kind of you know, side, conservative, liberal, you know, whatever <laughs> denomination, because they'd encounter these others. They're like, I didn't realize that other Christians thought this way in multiple dimensions. Yeah. Um, and so it really taught you to, it forced, forced me to learn how to have conversations, even about difference and to kind of be curious about differences, even within our own Christian group. Um, and how do we really, you know, live out of that curiosity and ask good questions and try to think deeply? And it's deeply uncomfortable for a lot of people um, because we, whenever we are hearing people articulate these differences, it challenges our own thinking, our own assumptions. It forces us to articulate um, what we think and to kind of reevaluate in ways that a lot of people find deeply uncomfortable. So Candler does does that really well, and they and then because of that, the conflict transformation program really builds on that in helping people think about um, kind of doing that beyond just sort of this this Christian, really diverse, but Christian bubble um, at the School of Theology there. Yeah. And, you know, that's an interesting point. I mean, I don't want to derail us uh, talking about colleges, but it is an interesting, you know, when, when you are in a place where you are surrounded by people who don't think the way you do, and it does kind of open your eyes. It teaches you to listen to people that are you know, have different perspectives on things. Um, I, I, I thought it was fascinating because my uh, my youngest son, David, went to Biola. And Biola is typically seen as a very conservative school. In fact, I was a little concerned, like, is it too conservative? I'm not sure what's going to happen if my son, you know, graduates from this college. But the funny thing is, um, even though that's kind of like you would label for as an outsider looking in, Biola's conservative. I know a lot of the guys who are professors there. And I know that a lot of those guys are really progressive. And the, and the interesting thing is that even though, again, the school has that label, they they allow professors to, of course, have their own mm-hmm. ideas. Um, the students themselves have you know different backgrounds, come from different backgrounds and views. And I was actually surprised, pleasantly surprised, how how much the school encouraged conversations that didn't kind of necessarily line up with their theological you know statement of faith. And so, yeah, there uh, maybe some ways those labels don't, don't really work because you're always, no matter where you go, you're going to probably end up encountering people that don't, uh, don't agree with you on things, which is in the long run, a very, very good thing. Yeah, absolutely. If it, if anything, it can help you articulate what you do believe, uh, in a positive right. way. It doesn't necessarily have to sway you one way or the other. Um, but it was, it was a really great gift for us just starting out and thinking about piecework, just starting the ecumenical conversation at Candler was, was wonderful. Yeah. Um, you know, Brian, you shared about all these experiences that led you to towards peace building. And I think anytime that we leave America and travel to somewhere else in the world, it's going to like radically change our perspective. Um, so thanks for sharing that. And also like connecting with a community that is so different from what you grew up with. And, um, but I'm just curious, Stephanie, if there were moments or experiences for you that kind of <laughs> prompted you to towards the same direction, um, towards peace building. Yeah, I think my experiences came later. It was actually after I met Brian that we took a year off after we graduated. So we we started at different times. As Brian said, he took seven years, I took four. Um, but we graduated at the same time. And then we, um, we went to Peru. I visited some of the places that he had lived, um, which was very stretching for me. I'm not into mosquitoes. Um, but also, <laughs> yes, yeah, so we traveled around Peru. Um, and then I worked for a little while in Cambodia with the Methodist Church Um helping workers there um, articulate what they do to an American audience. So, and then we were also in Zambia for um, a few months um, doing water wells and I was working at a malnutrition clinic at that point in my journey toward peacemaking, if you will, I was trying things on for size. I had no idea what I was interested in doing because when I, when I decided I don't need this specific for-profit job, what else is available to me, um, then I wanted to try it all. So um, in so doing, I think those experiences, those um, experiences abroad were very uncomfortable, um, but also wonderful because I was in contact with people who were so different from me. Um, So culturally, religiously, 
um, you know, different age groups, different theologies, even within Christianity. And I think that was really helping prime me um, for work that was outside of my comfort zone. But yeah, it's, I was a little late bloomer <laughs> uh, until around, <laughs> right, exactly around age 21, I was on the treadmill toward um, doing whatever was laid in front of me corporately. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I changed a little bit late in the game. So it's never too late to change, as you said. <laughs> never too late. Yeah. And what was it? Okay, you said that you were uncomfortable in those experiences. What was it that was so uncomfortable for you? <laughs> I'm a creature of comfort. So Brian knows that I need my coffee every morning and afternoon. Um, <laughs> I have my favorite pillow. Um, so honestly, it was physically getting out of out of my routine. Um, you traveling. Were in, you were in rough areas. I was in rough areas. Yes. I, I, this was not, um, you know, from hotel to hotel. So, I mean, this is the Amazon jungle. This is the middle of, you know, not the middle of, it was the town that was in the middle of the bush in Africa, in yeah. Zambia. I mean, and this and is a slum I, in, slum in, in um, Cambodia. In Cambodia. Yeah. And wow. so that was just a brand new experience for me. Um, and I think that level of discomfort makes you understand things about yourself. <laughs> Um, but also it makes you question, you know, what, what really is important. Um, if I'm given this amount of time to work towards something, what am I going to work towards? And I really, I think that time clarified for me that I wanted to work towards bettering society in a very tangible way, um, which mm. was helpful. It was helpful to have those three years at Candler to really tease out, okay, that's great. That's the direction you want. But what exactly is God going to look like? Uh, so yeah, that was a time where I, I used that newly found passion and then kind of rediscovered some gifts that or, or some of my training really um, from my engineering program and had those merged together. I love hearing your background. I feel like I, you know, I know you guys, but there are things I haven't learned and it's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> so cool to learn. So when you did get so you came to Peace Catalyst and did you start out in Sarajevo? Like, was that always the plan um, to be doing peace building? We there? were really drawn to Sarajevo um, because it is a mix of these three different ethnicities and religions all in one city. It's kind of a small city. Um, I think Sarajevo proper is what, 300,000 people, but you have this radical mixing of people. Um, but it's also these incredible divisions that still exist years and years and years after, mm. after the wars in the 1990s. Um, so we were drawn here for that reason, but also because there was a PCI colleague who had connections here and he connected us to them um, before, before we were set on, on Sarajevo. And so Brian did a few trips here. We, we started asking, okay, we're a bunch of, we're, we're two Americans um, with a small toddler, could we be useful here? Yeah. <laughs> the last thing we want to do is impose ourselves on others and say, hey, we have um, information for you, listen to us. What we really wanted to do is set ourselves as learners and supporting the work that was already happening here. And so we made some trips here before we decided to move here thinking, um, is there an invitation to work? Yeah. And is there work that we can join and actually benefit or be a benefit to them. Um, and so after that period of discernment, then yes, we, we decided that Sarajevo was ideal. And so we've, we've thoroughly enjoyed it ever since. Wow. And how long have you been there now? Been in Sarajevo um, almost four years to the day. Wow. Happy yeah. anniversary. <laughs> <Good> guys, huh? <laughs> And some of, I mean, you all have led teams of people to work alongside you from the U.S., um, Catalyze, Bosnia. What is that like? And what do you do with folks when they come to visit you? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think from the beginning, even for us and coming and kind of asking a lot of questions and knowing we could have tons to learn from local peace builders, uh, as well as asking, like, how can we support things here? We've always had this posture of, 
really, whenever we go anywhere, we have so much more to learn we, in any context. We have so much more that we can really learn uh, and how we can grow and how we can be formed than in some way that we can, you know, dispense all this wisdom or, you know, have all these, uh, all these, uh, have whatever to offer. Um, and of course, I think as, as times, as we have had more time here, um, you know, there are ways in which, you know, we have different gift sets that people are like, oh, could you help out with X, Y, and Z? And, you know, we're happy to do so. But to have this initial posture of going to a place to really learn, um, to support um, is essential. And so for us with the short-term groups, there've been several different uh, friends. I mean, we had different pastor friends, different church groups that had asked, it's like, what would it be like for us to bring a church to Bosnia and help you out? And for me, it was like, uh, I'm not so sure about that. Like, it's just the context being so complex and um, the perspective of foreigners getting involved with peace work, which is complex, which um, is, is worth a whole conversation. Um, it was like, it, it really isn't about coming to Bosnia in order to fix something or do something. And so um, I've been in conversation with several uh, of my closest friends here and colleagues. Um, and two of them um, are Muslim peace builders who are just absolutely incredible. And so we um, had been kind of brainstorming. I shared those like, there's some church groups interested in coming. I'm, I'm not sure what to do with that. But, but then we started kind of talking together and processing. It was like, what if we would kind of form these learning trips where people could come and learn from local peace builders? And then at the same time, uh, could we, with that foreign group coming to learn, create a safe space for locals from different backgrounds to also join uh, this trip and to hear from local peace building practitioners um, probably stories they've never had the chance to hear before from, you know, you know, whether it's Serb and Orthodox Serbs and Catholic Croats learning from Muslim Bosniaks or, you know, vice versa, Muslim, Muslim Bosniaks learning from Serbs and Croats, um, you know, Catholic and Orthodox peace builders. Uh, and so um, that, that was really the design is how can we create this learning space uh, with foreigners who, from a local perspective, which is pretty accurate, really know little to nothing about Bosnia. So how do we create a space in which they can really learn from these highly experienced peace builders, um, as well as that kind of learning atmosphere create such a space that locals could hear one another's stories? Well, it really had two goals, right? The, yeah. the goal for the foreigners who came, who I think that first trip, the first trip was mostly Americans, is it right? Mostly American context? But, yeah. but for foreigners to come, the goal would be, hey, how do, how do we create a space here where you can learn and then translate the things that you've learned to your own context back home? How can Absolutely. we equip you to be peacemakers back in the U.S., mm -hmm. right? And then for the locals, it's like, how can we, first of all, connect you to people that you may not have encountered? Um, as outsiders, we kind of are able to uh, work among all groups um, in, in the somewhat neutral zone. So how can we introduce somewhat. you to those peacemakers, but then how do we introduce you to Americans as well who are listening to you um, and really valuing, valuing your perspective and how do we empower you to continue your work here? So it was, it really was an interesting pilot project. Um, it went really well. It went incredible. Um, yeah, the feedback was incredible and the follow-up since then people, yeah. It was, yeah. We're excited to great. start, to start doing it again. Right. Everything post yeah. So, yeah. I, so, <laughs> but you did a virtual one last year, which I was a yeah. part of. And that was incredible. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. I, I think for quite a few of the local folks, including myself, that kind of encountering another person, you can only get a tiny fraction of that experience mm -hmm. in something that's mm -hmm. online. And so, so much of the impact totally. for people, because again, we're hearing stories of incredible pain. But then you're also hearing stories from these peace builders and, and practices they go through and some workshops that they held of how they're overcoming some of these divisions. And so much hope and joy. Like it, it, It's incredible. And then at the same time, you're eating all these meals together. You're connecting. You're having fun. Like we took the whole group whitewater rafting, which, of course, the foreigners love. But locals hadn't had the chance to go on their own, you know, rivers to whitewater raft before mm -hmm. either. So it's like this atmosphere of like fun and and really diving into experiences of pain and wrestling with how to how to overcome mm. divisions and such joy, it was deeply impactful. So everything online compared to that always feels like, 
oh, we can't replicate it. So we're excited. You just to, need to come in person next exactly, time. Exactly, I have to come in person. So, yeah, I want to. You too, Keith. And right now you're um, partnering with local peace builders on a trauma-sensitive peace building class. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously here in the in in Bosnia and Herzegovina, there's a whole history of trauma um, with war, ethnic cleansing, everything that way. There's also a ton of intergenerational trauma, um, which is even in a huge way related to kind of uh, all the ethnic divisions that various politicians were able to kind of stir up in the buildup to the war um, from World War II, especially. Um, but then even now with youth and the stories and experiences of their parents being passed down. And so unhealed trauma really resulting in, um, you know, ongoing social, widespread social distrust, um, which isn't even just kind of at a social level towards other groups, but even just affects people's interpersonal relationships um, with even people in their own group. It just so much social distrust as a result of <clears throat> all this historical and intergenerational trauma and that being passed down in families. Which isn't unique to Bosnia. <clears throat> well, exactly, exactly what I was going to jump into. Yeah. And so, so also though, um, I mean, something that I think is really important um, for me and from the beginning of our time here, even from some of the initial trips in coming here, um, to, to see how could we support local peace building work, um, is that there's this distrust for really good reason of foreigners that have been involved in peace building work because, um, peace building peace has oftentimes been this imposed idea, just like in different circles, kind of forgiveness or reconciliation. There are these things that are incredibly complex, incredibly deep. Trust building requires a tremendous amount of time. Healing and the choice to forgive and so many other processes require a lot of work, a lot of self-examination, a lot of uh, healing. And, and so lots of ways in which um, Bosnians have perceived of foreigners, there's been this um, kind of imposition at times of what peace and peace building could look like. Um, and at the same time, there's been a lot of foreign meddling that is really been problematic in terms of uh, mm. exacerbating local divisions um, because, again, it being in this place between powers. So the reason I bring this up is that so much of, for me, in my posture and working with locals, there's really this really incredibly valid question of why should we bother listening to you whenever your work in some ways is related to kind of questions about kind of us dealing with our past, us going into these incredibly complex, challenging issues, like, you know, forgiveness of people that have done, you know, horrific crimes or, uh, you know, other people groups, you know, and these are, these are ways that we've been harmed. And so there's this kind of inherent question that, especially for Westerners, and then even more specifically for Americans, that it's like, well, have you really done your homework? Who are you to lead a trauma course? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Whenever we talk about, I mean, so like in the Balkans, so much of this history, I mean, it you know, goes back to World War II, to World War I, you know, to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, to the Ottoman Empire, to the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. And so all of a sudden for um, foreigners, or, and especially even for us as Americans then to say, we need to think about issues of, of the past. We need to work through, you know, historic trauma and how groups have harmed one another. For them, there's that inherent question of, well, have you done your work? Because we don't see that America has. Right. So there's this um, posture that is required of us living as foreigners you're kind of a little bit under the spotlight um, in a way that is, you know, if there's foreigners that move into, you know, your town in the United States, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, huh, like, what are they doing They're here? Different. And it's like, what's their, what's their motivation? And, you know, whatever that way. And so for people really curious about us, it's like, well, you're, you're wanting to do peace work, but all these incredibly complex topics, it's like, have you done your work too? So I think for, for me, it's incredibly important and has been from the very first trip here to really be able to lead with this sort of self-reflective, vulnerable posture um, with this sensitivity to, towards really valid, 
distrust that a lot of people would have towards Westerners talking about these ideas, but not applying them back home. And so, um, so, uh, I mean, all that to say related to this trauma course is that um, all the things that we see in terms of historic trauma in Bosnia, all the challenges, all sort of, um, you know, whether it's, you know, groups that have perpetuated harm, you know, which is, you know, different points in history has been one group versus another group, whatever that way, it's complex. Again, this, these empires crossing over this little patch of land. Um, it's like, how much are we able to also kind of recognize the same dynamics that, um, that exist in the United States related to kind of historic harms and trauma and, and U.S. history is incredibly recent. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so with this trauma course specifically, um, it's the first course that we've been offering right now is um, an English course. And so it's Americans, people from the U.K. and Europe that are joining and thinking about a lot of these questions, learning from um, a, a good friend of our, several good friend of ours are, are different, um, both instructors and then guest speakers in the course who have done hundreds to thousands of trauma trainings. And so they have incredible insight to kind of speak to a lot of these dynamics of these cycles of harm and cycles of, of victims and cycles of aggressors and kind of internal processes and kind of the, the neuroscience even behind it of kind of the, what's going on in people's brains whenever they experience trauma and they experience harms. And so all this is so much more common in the West, in the United States, and the impacts of trauma in ongoing cycles of division and conflict. Um, and so to become more conscious of that can help in incredible ways to be able to be more sensitive to the needs, to the wounds, um, that other communities have experienced. So this course right now is for the U.S. And part of the, the model in doing this is that basically um, by developing this in English and making it hopefully um, self-sustaining financially, we're going to be able to have enough money to um, make subsidize. it to subsidize mm-hmm. and make it sustainable financially to offer Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian language uh, trauma-sensitive peacebuilding courses. And so that is um, something that we've already been in conversation about and we're excited to begin developing um, now that this course is underway and it seems like financially um, we'll be able to make it sustainable. Wow, that's really amazing. So cool. Yeah, it's incredible because like you said, so many of us in, in the U.S., especially white Americans, like we don't have a context for trauma or what. I mean, of course, everyone experiences trauma, but we it, there are so few like structures in place where we can understand mm-hmm. it and understand how it impacts people. So that's really, um, really incredible and exciting to see how that can grow. Yeah, very cool. I also really like you were saying earlier about how, you know, when just the even your whole approach and posture is, you know, coming to this coming as an American, you know, uh, to this other country and, but not coming, I think the way, uh, I think I've seen it done most of the time, which is, okay, I'm, I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I have my MDiv. I've got my training. I'm here to fix everything. Everybody I'm showing up with all the answers. Right. Um, but, but to instead <laughs> yeah. show up with this, which I think is so much more helpful, um, showing up to say, Hey, I've got some stuff to learn here. Could you help me? And sitting, sitting and listening and collaborating with people, you know, like you said, if there's an opportunity, I was, I have a skill set. Well, I can help with that. Great. But otherwise I'm not here. I'm not the answer man, right? I'm not, we're not the superheroes coming in, swooping in to make everything wonderful. And I think, um, I just really appreciate that about you guys and that that's the way you've come into this situation. And, um, and I'm sure it's been a lot more effective than the other way. Well, we're talking, you're talking to us four years in. So at the very beginning, we started, (laughs) (laughs) so at the beginning, we started with learning the language, for example, (laughs) Um, and fixing printers. Brian redid an entire website just because um, a local peace organization was like, Hey, I can't, I can't access the funders I want to access because they asked for my website link and it's not in English. We're like, Oh, well, we can do that. And so we really started just helping in the ways that we could, um, ways that were needed, which were not glamorous. They weren't sexy. A lot of grunt work. 
a lot of homework. Which we sure. still do. We do, yeah. As much as we can helping support, like even with the trauma course, I'm not a trauma trainer. Absolutely not. And so we're highlighting. Not, not, in, yeah. <laughs> not absolutely not as though you, that you couldn't be, but yes. No, but it's not um, <laughs> like local people here and the expertise that they have and the gift sets that they have, the, the personal experience they have of leading so many different trainings, the experience of, you know, personal trauma and group trauma, collective trauma, and um, not even just related to trauma, but even relating to different um, just peace building skill sets. Like they have cultivated this actively for 20 years. And so these are the voices of people that we want to highlight, both, mm -hmm. both for Westerners to learn from. Um, as well as for locals. And I think that's been something that's been an incredible privilege that I think more and more people have even approached me about is like, hey, you've met those peace builders in that other community where because of ethnic divisions or just because of geography and whatever, people haven't had the chance to meet one another. So I, in order to help support local projects, it's just been an incredible privilege to be like, well, hey, let me talk to this person and see if they'd be willing to to join your program. And so these, these new projects with locals starting up and again, so kind of playing in some ways, um, like the a role of like a networker of a person Bridge trying builder, to, and, sure. and between these different groups and providing them opportunities to connect. And, and again, a lot of people here, they've already connected across these different um, groups and relationships. So it's not like that doesn't happen, but to play a support role in that, and then to play a, a, um, like a logistical role to help these programs get off the ground that's um, so much more sustainable than sort of us ever trying to run something on our own, which wouldn't be relevant and would rightfully kind of be laughed at as irrelevant as foreigners thinking the best. Um, and so it's really been an incredible, like people sometimes think like our work is hard, like, oh, you're in this post-conflict place where you're in things on the news. It's so difficult. There's all these different narratives and, ethnic, and people now in the States are like, yeah, we understand different narratives and it's really tough. It's must be so tough doing this full time. And we're like, we get to hang out with the coolest people in Bosnia who are <laughs> do their work better. The it's, people that show up after conflict so and are getting to know, you know, the enemy and working through after deep personal trauma, working through issues of forgiveness and how to love their neighbor. Like these are the most courageous, inspiring people you could meet. And we get to work with them and support their work. And then at times they're like, oh hey, it can't be a local that says this. Could you lead this part of the conversation. And yeah. so like, it's not that, and again, like you said, like uh, already Keith, that there's times where, you know, you have a skill set so you can offer something. There's a lot of times where you have a skill set, but you shouldn't be the one that says it. Right. <laughs> it needs to be yeah. someone else. And so there are ways where even if you do have the capacity to the skill set, when can we learn to kind of, um, and it, it, there are times where I really don't do this well, just because I probably tell like, verbal processor, all these different kinds of things. But it's like, how can we appropriately kind of, even where we would have something to say, learn to kind of let um, let the appropriate people kind of step up. And especially in a context um, where we're foreigners, but I mean, even if I was in the States as, you know, as a, as a white person, it's like, when are times that I need to learn to kind of sit back and listen more? Um, and or how so can we let our work remain behind the scenes? Yes. Like a lot yeah. of the project and all of the engagement work, how do we just that's that we put all of that energy and thoughtfulness into making something work and then we let it go. Um, which honestly is, mm -hmm. it's really fun to see, <laughs> to see locals really um, take off and, and lean into their giftedness. So it, like Brian said, it's a really privileged place to be. Yeah. yeah. So cool. Could almost say that you're catalysts. <gasps> Whoa. Oh, there's Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Becca, that's deep. We really, really like the language of like, instead of like peace building consultant or something like peace building accompanier, because I think a lot more like it isn't even like the primary voices are these incredible locals. So like they've already done so many, so much work for, you know, two decades now and their stories are so inspiring and so it's it's really kind of accompanying an accompaniment process more than yeah. it is um, something that I think we can ever rightfully take credit for. Yeah. So cool. Very cool. Thank you both so much. It's been awesome to hear your story. Yeah, thank you. Y'all, cool. this has been wonderful. 
Wow. Thank you, Brian and Stephanie. That was really great. I love hearing their story. And, you know, I think I'm just, I'm impacted by kind of the breadth of it because there's so much that has, that they've experienced, that they've gone through, that they've learned just years of understanding and learning about, you know, different people groups around the world and their own role in the kingdom of God. And um, um, so I'm just struck by, you know, their, their story being so um, in-depth and layered and, and having all these incredible years of, of knowledge, um, gaining and learning and, and really like understanding peace building before going into a context Mm-hmm. to become peace builders, um, especially in an international context, because I think, you know, sometimes as, as white Americans, especially, um, you know, we can <laughs> be caught up in this sort of, um, I don't want to say, you know, voyeuristic, but almost voyeuristic way of how we approach um, peacemaking and especially in an international context. And I think what I really appreciate about them and their story is that they didn't say they didn't go into this other place and say oh we have all the answers and we know what needs to happen to build peace here but they really um came in with a posture of humility and with the their goal was to first listen and learn and understand um the people there and kind of learn from them and then come alongside them and support local peace builders so i'm just really encouraged and inspired by um how they've approached all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. I, I also, I really, I really appreciated the part of their story about how, you know, they, they met going to school for this engineering thing and then, um, and then had this like, you know what, there's gotta be something more to our life. You know, they want, wanted something more than um, sort of this corporate dream. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which, you know, I, I've done that myself, so I can, I totally resonate with that. Um, and taking that step, I mean, there's there's this sense in their story that I really relate to as well. Not in the same way, but but there is, and I think, you know, sometimes you, you come to these places in your life where you feel a calling or a tug um, to take out sort of a step of faith in a different direction that, you know, on one level seems a little crazy and what are you doing and why would you do that? And, you know, you've got this degree in engineering, you've got these great jobs lined up, you can make a lot of money. You know, you could have a house and a couple of cars and well, why would you want to, why would you want to throw that away? You know, why would you, mm-hmm. you spend all this time and energy investing in this engineering degree and why would you mm-hmm. walk away from that? Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, just having that calling, that, that tug, that desire to do that um, is one thing, but I mean, but to, to step out in faith and, and really do it. You know, there is that sense of like, and I've had a couple of times in my life, uh, Wendy and I have had a couple of times in our lives where we've had that experience of feeling like God is calling us to do something that doesn't make any sense to anybody else. Your family <laughs> and your friends think you're crazy, but mm-hmm. you, all you know is, no, we've got to do this. And, yeah. um, and so I really respect mm-hmm. that um, both of them had the faith and the courage to take that step and to do yeah. something a little audacious and, you know, kind of out of the box. And, um, and certainly, you know, that, that in itself is very difficult to do, but then once you're actually out there, you know, now you put yourself out there and now you're here, here you are in another country. Um, mm-hmm. that's really scary as well. you know, now, now you've got kids and oh my gosh. Right. So mm-hmm. that's, it's really, really challenging. And I, I really appreciate that they took that step and, um, you know, we may have skipped over some of the specifics of the challenges of what that was like but i i have no doubt that there are many barriers to overcome right but what i think to me that what stands out is the way that they've done it and you you know you you touched on that this this and we talked about it in the conversation you know this coming with an attitude and a posture of not fixing but listening and recognizing you know uh, and then that collaboration piece is so important you know um i may have mentioned this before but the first time I ran across that was a friend of mine was doing some work in inner city in Costa Mesa and uh, community building work. And um, that was one of the most powerful things that I learned from her was she was talking about how when they would go into those communities, uh, these are like, you know, there was gangs and drugs and low income and a lot of, a lot of, you know, people out of work and 
uh, a lot of poverty and a lot of you know struggles in these um, at-risk communities in, in Southern California. And um, and they came in, you know, again, as white middle-class American Christians. Um, they didn't come into the into those situations with answers. They didn't come in there with, you know, solutions. We, we were going to mm-hmm. fix it. They really came and just listened and became mm-hmm. a part of that community and moved into the community, bought a house in that neighborhood, lived, this is my neighborhood too now, mm-hmm. and um, really just helped people figure out, help the community figure out what are the biggest challenges and help mm-hmm. the community sort of, you know, facilitating the community's conversation about how do we solve our problems? Not, not telling them how to solve the problem, but sort of imagining alongside them, what do you think our biggest problems are? And what do you, you know, what do you think the solutions would be? And then now how can we uh, move forward to working together, solve these problems together? And it was such a different approach, but I think it's much more effective and powerful. And um, it's very, if I can use the word, it's very incarnational. It feels Mm -hmm. like what we're doing when we take those kinds of approaches is it's an incarnational approach in those communities. And to me, that's what works. And that's what I'm really excited mm-hmm. about hearing, um, you know, Brian Steph's story. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it reminds me of um, our conversation with Peter and Liz, when we were talking about power with, Yeah. and um, yeah. And I think, you know, Brian talked about just the history of, of that region and how complex it is Um and to come into that as like <laughs> a Westerner yeah. who hasn't really experienced that kind of trauma. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really amazing how they're like bringing in other Westerners who, who don't really understand that to learn from, you know, pe- local people in Bosnia who have lived it and, and can teach it and can, um, yeah, can help us to understand where they're coming from Mm -hmm. so that we can collaborate and support what they're doing. Um, But I love what you're saying about how it's not, yeah, it's not coming in and being like, I know about peace building, so here's what you need to do. (laughs) But like you said, really coming alongside people and and living life with them and and learning from them first um, before Mm -hmm. you can can collaborate. So, yeah, I think that's that's so key because, um, you know, it, it also... It, you know, otherwise it ends up being like a cookie cutter approach. Like, you know, before you even jump on the plane and fly over to the other, to this, to this other country that you're going to minister to, you've got a book with, you know, step one, two, three already figured out. And then you show up and you go, all right, everybody listen to me. Step one, right. step, two, step three. And it's so naive and foolish mm-hmm. and, and prideful and so many other things. And, um, versus like, and I guess I understand why this, the approach we're talking about, the sort of collaboration approach, the coming and learning and listening, you know, recognizing that you have a lot to learn from them before you even begin to try to help anything, um, is that it takes longer. Um, and there is no cookie cutter approach. There is no formula. The only formula other is, is listening. But what it means is that it means that in every context, whether you're in Costa Mesa or, or Bosnia or wherever, um, it's going to look different, right? It won't, if you go and look at these different peacemaking, and this is why I'm really glad we're doing this series, because by talking to different people doing peacemaking, obviously you can notice a few similar you know, similarities in the, so the approach, but it all looks really different. This is what I find really fascinating, right? Um, the kinds of things that are being done and the ways we're doing them are unique to this to the environment. They're unique to the community. They're unique to that culture, um, because I think they have to be. You know, they they can't be something that we bake over here, you know, in America in some some lab, and, <laughs> and now we're mass producing it. Like I think that's such an American mm-hmm. way of looking at it. But True. yeah, again, this this to me is is what's beautiful. It's what allows this sort of day to day, moment to moment. Um, posture of um, really, again, like we talked about in one of our previous uh, interviews, right? Um, the power under and power with. And I think that's that's beautiful. I really love that. I love that we get to share stories like this for, for people listening to the Peace Catalyst podcast, because if you are someone who wants to do peacemaking, or even if you are doing peacemaking, I think these are the kind of conversations 
um, that can help draw us back to models that to me look a lot more like Jesus and um, a lot less like, yeah, we, we've got it all figured out. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, we can even cause harm by approaching peace yeah. building in that sort of way of, you know, I know what's right. I have the answers. I'm going to implement this program here yeah. without, you know, taking the time to, to be with people and learn from them. So yeah. um, I think that's really important. Oh, no, I t- totally, I totally agree with you. And I, I don't know, we may have mentioned this before. I can't remember. I'm, I'm getting old, but, um, but uh, there's some really great films. I love movies uh, that, that kind of illustrate that, you know, how mm-hmm. we come in with that approach and we end up causing damage and harm. So the two mm-hmm. movies that pop in my mind, I feel like are the, the, the best in that, or one is called the mission uh, with hmm. Robert De Niro. It's really great. Um, hmm. It talks about Catholic missionaries in South America mm-hmm. and, um, and how they come in with the best of intentions, but because they come in with that approach, they end up causing a lot of suffering, sadly. Yeah. And then the other one is a film a little more recently. It's called silence um, with hmm. uh, Liam Neeson and, uh, it's directed by Martin Scorsese. It's based on a wonderful book called Silence mm-hmm. about missionaries and, again, Catholic missionaries uh, in Japan. Hmm. And that's one of the things that stands out in that film is how, you know, there, there's a scene in, the, in Silence where uh, one of the Japanese <clears throat> is talking to uh, the Catholic priest and he talks about how, you know, other priests have come before and they couldn't be bothered to learn our language. They couldn't be bothered yeah. to learn our culture. They depended on Japanese who spoke English uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, who, who could translate, right, um, yeah. for them because they themselves had no concern for that. And then later on, a bit of a spoiler, but not nothing big, but, but, but later on in the film, um, that same priest who came in with that sort of old model we're talking about of shut up and listen to me, I got, I got all the answers, mm-hmm. um, he kind of turns the corner and he, he adopts a very different approach where he, he actually marries a Japanese woman. He has Japanese children. He learns the language. He becomes a part of the culture. He dresses in Japanese dress. Mm. And, and now all of a sudden he has way more uh, understanding, first of all, and way more influence and impact uh, in the people around him than he did when he walked around, you know, dressed in a, like a Catholic priest and, you know, speaking his language, not theirs. Uh, imposing his ideas onto theirs without understanding it. Um, and the film does a really, really good job of illustrating even just the breakdown in language barriers and communications and unintentional consequences of these things where, you know, he thinks he's telling them one thing, but what they're hearing and understanding is something so radically different that when he finds out what they think he's saying, it's like, oh, no, that's not what I meant at all, but it's too late. You've convinced them. Mm. You've done a wonderful job of convincing them something that you never intended to convince them of, right? Um, totally. Because because I think now we can, we have the benefit of looking back and seeing, yeah, this is destructive. This isn't helpful. Right. And it ends up creating problems, you know, for future generations. And now, now they can't, before they can even begin, they have to undo the damage we did, you know, a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think, yeah, I think that's such a great illustration. And it, it kind of makes me think too, like you're talking about the Jesus way of, of yeah. doing this work of doing peacemaking. And I think the Jesus way is it's being with, it's living with, it's yeah. crying with, it's yeah. even suffering with what yeah. others are suffering. Um, and really, bec- like you said, becoming kind of part of like, that community not to say like oh now I'm one of you because you can never be one of them right but now you can now you have an understanding so you can collaborate um with them yeah I I agree I think yeah it's um it's not to sort of come in and and pretend oh look I'm one of you but there is something that happens when those the, the people group that you're wanting to serve when, you know, I think there's, cause I've, I've seen this with my friend Chrissy in Costa Mesa and when she was approaching community building there. Um, I don't know how to say it. it's sort of like when the people around you 
come to you and they begin to treat you like you're one of the community. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Like it's sort of like you win a lot mm-hmm. of, um, I guess, permission, right? You get permission mm-hmm. from them. Trust. Yeah, trust and permission. Trust, that you, yeah. don't, you know, and you again, it could trust. take years. It could take years yeah. for mm-hmm. them to kind of get, because I'm sure at first there is sort of this suspicion of like, yeah, we know what you're doing. You're only doing, you're just going through the motions. But and you're going to leave place, yeah, exactly. Not, yeah, you're yeah. going to leave in a few years and blah, blah, blah. You know, someone's going to be really with us. Right. Mm-hmm. Or there's some agenda. You're only, you're only pretending to care about this because you're trying to, you know, blah, right. blah, blah, get your numbers or, or you know. Make money. Yeah. Get your goals or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, yeah, part of disarming that suspicion, which is, I think, valid, again, for because of years of uh, really bad, uh, so, so, some toxic and destructive things that have done, have done in the name of Jesus. Um, yeah, I think it, we have to sort of reach a place where they know that they really can trust us, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the most beautiful part of it is is relationship. I mean, it's loving and being loved. And yeah. that's kind of, at the end of the day, um, the most important thing. Yeah, so. totally agree. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, And for more information about Peace Catalyst, and if you'd like to support our peace-building work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thank you.